Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. My kids love the game Guess Who? So that's a game that we had growing up, and if you're going to buy it for your kids now, don't buy the cheap version. They don't make things as good as they used to make things. They just don't. So you got to go and you got to pay a little bit more money and buy the version that we had when we were little. But anyway, the game Guess Who? Great. So if you're not familiar, there's all these different faces, these different cards that you flip up on your different board. Nobody can see it except you. You're looking at all those faces. And each person picks one. And you don't know who the other person's face is, who they've picked, and they've got a name underneath. And then the the object is to ask questions to the other person so that you can eliminate people and get it down to one where you figure out who their person is. So you're asking, you know, is your person wear glasses? Does your person have earrings? Is it a boy? You know, yes or no questions that can sort of uh, uh, narrow in there. Uh, and use those qualities that those pictures have to eliminate certain people. Well, well, our passage is about gospel proclamation. We're going to look at that in a second. But, but basically, what we see here in this passage is there's qualities of true gospel proclamation, and that's kind of what this passage, Acts chapter four, verses one through seven, is uh, is going to tell us about these particularly uh, particular qualities. So, so hear the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue. This is Paul and Barnabas still. They entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So you'll remember last week our passage deals with Paul and Barnabas going into the synagogue, preaching the gospel. That was their typical pattern. And that passage really centered on God's plan for his word. So what is God's plan for the word? The passage last week really talks about that. Well, our passage this week, again, it's also about the word of God, but it really focuses on the proclamation of that word, people speaking the word, preaching the word, proclaiming it. So in verse one and three, we've got Paul and Barnabas speaking God's word. And, and then in verse seven, at the tail end, we've got them continuing to preach the gospel. So, so the proclamation of the gospel, it brackets our passage right at the top and at the bottom and then shows up in the middle. This passage is about gospel proclamation. And in particular, we're going to be taught what gospel proclamation looks like. Again, some of these characteristics of it. And there certainly are more than five, but there are five at least that this passage focuses on. And that's the way we're going to look at the passage. So, so what are the five marks or what are five marks of faithful, of true gospel proclamation? First, true gospel proclamation produces fruit. It's the first thing we'll see. Second, it's bold. Third, it produces opposition. Fourth, it produces evidence. And finally, it protects itself. And we'll look at those in turn. So look at where Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, look at where he starts. Look at how he sets up this passage. Verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So Paul and Barnabas, they're traveling missionaries. They're, they're picking up their normal practice. They go into a town. If there's a Jewish synagogue, <clears throat> they, they go there on a Saturday on the Sabbath, and they preach the word as they have opportunity. 
They preach the gospel, the good news of Christ. And, and God blesses the proclamation of his word. We're told a great number of people believed the gospel. So they preach the gospel. A big group of folks become Christians here in the synagogue and in, in this town. And this is the first mark of gospel preaching in our passage. Gospel preaching produces fruit. And that's what we've seen all throughout our study in Acts. So the 13 chapters before this are all about God producing fruit through the faithful proclamation of the good news about Christ. So this is chapter 2, verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Lots of fruit. Chapter 4, verse 3. Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Chapter 5, verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Chapter 6, verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And on and on it goes. Gospel proclamation produces fruit. We see it all throughout the book of Acts. And God has chosen the, the preaching of his word to be the mechanism by which he saves people. That's the way he saves people, is through the proclamation of his word. Like Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, The gospel is the power of God for salvation. We can compare that to other things that aren't the power of salvation. So your personality, although it might be great, you can have a sparkling personality. It can't save anybody. Your personality can't. Your, your practical service, your deeds of love, great things that the Lord calls us to do. But those deeds of service, those can't save anybody. This church's sense of community, praise the Lord, but it, it can't save anybody, right? Uh, an emotional feeling that we may be able to stir up in somebody. A lot of times the Lord uses that, but again, it, it can't save someone. But praise God, gospel preaching really does save some somebody, right? Gospel preaching is what saves people. If you're here and you're a Christian, you know how you were brought to Jesus so he could cover your sins with his blood. You, you were brought when you heard the gospel preached, whether it was from a podium in a church or whether it was individual Christians that were sharing that gospel and proclaiming it to you. But, but that's how God saves people. So you, you heard the truth that God is our all-good and all-powerful creator. And so we, we owe him worship because he's created us for that purpose. But then you heard about the fact that we're sinful, that we've fallen short of that, that we've turned away from God. All mankind has. We've all rebelled against him. And what that means is we deserve wrath and judgment from the Lord. That's the situation we're in. That's the bad news that makes sense of, of the good news. And that bad news is why Christ came, to hang on the cross, to stand in our place. So when we would trust in him alone for our salvation, he would pay for our sins. He took the guilt on his shoulders, guilt that wasn't rightfully his, that, that we deserve, and he stood in our place and, and paid for our sins on the cross. You heard that message, and that message saved you if you're here and, and you're a Christian. So praise God, gospel preaching produces fruit. But the question for us is, do we really believe that? Always a good question to ask. Do I really believe that? Do I really believe it's the word of God that does all the heavy lifting when it comes to, to spiritual things? You know, do, do I believe that the only thing that will ever crack open my coworker's hard heart toward Jesus is the word of the gospel? That's the only thing that can do it. Do I really believe that? For us as parents, do I really believe that the most important content for my kids to hear 
isn't what will prepare them for their SATs, although helpful, right? Good thing to pursue. That's not the most important thing. The most important content for my kids to hear is the word of God. Nothing else is guaranteed to, to produce fruit, but gospel proclamation is. Verse 1, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Well, because we know it's, it's the preaching of the gospel that does the real work, it's God's word that actually changes people, that, that should engender confidence in us as the ones who are sharing the gospel. And this gets at our second point. So the second point, true gospel proclamation is bold. True gospel proclamation is bold. Look back again at verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Real quick, there's the gospel, right? These non-Christians became Christians through belief, not through trying harder, not through some kind of moral program, not through feeling really, really bad. No, they were saved because they believed in Christ. Salvation comes by faith alone in Christ alone. That's the gospel. But, but we're looking in particular at, at the way the gospel was preached to them by Paul and Barnabas. So again, we're told that when they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So what was the particular way in which they spoke? Because it kind of singles that out. They spoke in such a way that these people believed. So what's that talking about? What way did they speak? What characterized it? I think we're told down in verse 3. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. And again, this is something else we've seen time and time again in Acts. If you do a word study for bold or boldly, you get a bunch of hits in the book of Acts. This is chapter 9, verse 27. Saul preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Chapter 13, verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. 18, verse 26, Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Chapter 19, verse 8, and Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. So true gospel proclamation is bold. And and why is it bold? Well, it's because we know that God's word is effective. And when you know something's effective, then you speak about it in a bold way. So think about the flip side. When are we timid? to share something? When are we slow to commend something, maybe a product or a service to someone? It's oftentimes when you're not super confident it will work, right? So if you've been to a restaurant and they get your order right 50% of the time, that's probably not a restaurant that you're really excited about commending to other people, right? If, if we had a Bible that God decided he would use only 50% of the time, it makes sense that we'd be a little bit slower to commend that, maybe a little bit more timid, but, but what we've seen is we've got a, pro- a God who promises to use his word 100% of the time. God's word is 100% effective. Every time it gets proclaimed, it does exactly what God wants to do with it. It's always effective. And, and this is a spot where, where as Christians, sometimes we shoot ourselves in the foot because, because sometimes we treat our own opinions as if they're certain and we talk that way and, and we think that way. So sometimes we, we speak as boldly about our ideas on politics or culture or food or fitness or finances. Sometimes we'll speak as confidently on those things, as boldly, as, as we speak about God's word. Or even a worst-case scenario, sometimes, we, sometimes it comes across like we're actually more bold on some of those things than, than we are on God's word. But, of course, that shouldn't be so, right? 
there should be a marked difference in your boldness, boldness level between talking about politics and talking about the gospel. That is a good thing to think about. Do my coworkers and friends and family members, if I said to them, hey, which one do I sound more confident in when I'm talking about it? Which one do I sound more bold about when I talk about politics or when I talk about the gospel? Or when I talk about my hobbies or fitness or finances or other things people can have opinions in, do I sound more bold about that than I sound about the gospel? We, we want there to be a marked difference, right? But because you, you might be wrong about what Joe Biden should do about gasoline prices. You might be right, but, but you might be wrong. But, but the Bible is undoubtedly right that God deserves every human's full worship, you see, that's not, that's not questionable. We're certain about that. We might not know about this other thing, but we're certain about that. You, you might be wrong about what should happen with the Second Amendment and the way that that works itself out in our country, but, but God's 100% right that salvation comes through Christ alone. You see? You, you want people to see that you're more confident in the Bible than you are in your own opinions. As, as fellow church members, we want each other to see that we're more confident in the Bible than we are in our own inclinations and, and instincts about things. God's word's certain. And as we mentioned before, it's, it's always effective. And that's why Paul and Barnabas are speaking boldly. They know God always uses his word. And, and this isn't just God's expectation for pastors and missionaries like Paul. They're not the only ones that he expects to speak boldly. Remember what Paul says about his imprisonment in Philippians chapter 1, verse 14. He says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. There, he's not talking about missionaries. He's not talking about people in full-time ministry. He's talking about lay believers. He's talking about Christians in churches, that, that they are bold to speak the word, which is what he's commending to us. So, so is your sharing of the gospel... And is your mentioning of God's word, is it marked by being bold? Is, is the confidence you have in God's word in your head, is it shown in the way you talk about God's word with other people? Do you have that kind of confidence? And, and if not, why? So, so what stops us from telling a friend, hey, I, I know you talk like all good people get into heaven, but, but that's not true. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what God says about this. It's, it's only a connection to Jesus Christ through faith alone in him that gets you into heaven. Why are we slow to do that? You know, when, when we hear our coworkers say, well, we, we can't really tell anyone else their lifestyle is wrong because who's to know what's, what's right and wrong? Why do we stop short of, of saying what keeps us from, from talking about the fact that God has given us his word and it's sure? So no, of course, we do know right and wrong. Because God's told us that in, in his word. You know, for a lot of us, it's, it's probably the fear of rejection, right? From the person that we're, we're talking with. We can all relate to that. But, but shouldn't we have greater fear of that non-believer being rejected by God on the future day of judgment? Than that slight sting, at least for a time or a season, of, of their rejection of us now? Maybe, maybe when we pull back from saying things like that, maybe we're worried that we'll come across as prideful or, or like a know-it-all. You know, we've all known people like that, and, and we don't want it to come across that way. But, but see, that's where we have to remember that, that the gospel we're passing along to others, it's, it's not our gospel. We didn't create it. You're just passing along a message, right? 
This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. He says, the gospel that was preached by me, it's not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man. So the, the Bible isn't man's word. It's, it's not an idea that's from us. It's God's word. That's what the gospel is. So, so you can think about it like this. We've talked about this before, but you're not the chef when it comes to these ideas, this message. You're not the chef. You didn't put it together. You didn't make it. What you are is the waiter. And the idea is you want to get the food from the kitchen to the customer's table without messing it up, right? Without adding anything to it, without taking anything away from it. But if somebody doesn't like the food, you don't have to take that personally because you didn't make the food. You're just transmitting it. You're just taking it to somebody else. So it's not that you have confidence in in your cooking. You have confidence in the chef's cooking. The Lord is the one who who has put together his his word. Now, of course, this this doesn't mean we should ever be rude or uncaring or, or uncharitable, but we should be bold. And here's a slightly different question to think about. As a Christian, do you want gospel proclamation that is bold? So we've kind of been thinking about it where all of us are standing in the shoes of the person talking about the gospel. But, but what about sitting in the chair? What, what about being a member of this church? Do you want gospel proclamation that is bold? Or, this is easy to do, do you just want preaching that affirms everything you already believe? And affirms the traditions that you've grown up in, right? So you just don't want anything where you think, that's weird. That's not the way I've heard it. That's not the way we did it in my church growing up, you know? Is that what we're looking for? Or do we want bold proclamation? Do we want proclamation that actually, the Lord actually is calling us to move in particular ways? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 makes it clear that the public preaching of the Bible is the pathway God uses to get Christians through this life holding on to Jesus so they can be saved. Anytime you're tempted to maybe downplay proclamation of the gospel, preaching, look at that verse, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. It's a, it's a helpful verse. So we should want the same kind of gospel proclamation that we should be involved in ourselves, which, which is bold. Verse 3, so they remain for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. But, but if there's one thing sinners don't like, it's to be told not only that they're sinners, but, but that we're so sinful we can't save ourselves, that we have to have Jesus to save us. That kind of, of bold gospel proclamation, it's always going to produce opposition. And this is the third characteristic we see in our passage. True gospel proclamation produces opposition. Verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. This is something else we've seen time and time again in the book of Acts. The gospel gets preached. People oppose the gospel, oftentimes attack the messengers, right? So basically there's two broad reactions. Either people believe the gospel or they oppose it. Well, we saw that first one in the opening verses of our passage. A bunch of people believe they come to Christ here in Iconium. But, but now we're seeing that a big group also opposes the gospel. But that's what gospel proclamation does. It produces opposition. So what does that look like in our passage? Well, in verse 2, it looks like these non-believing Jews trying to destroy the credibility of Paul and Barnabas. Probably spreading rumors about them, talking about how these guys are, are bad guys. They're trying to poison the minds, we're told, of people against these Christians. But, but as oftentimes happens in Acts, the opposition ramps up really, really quickly. So by the end of our passage, look at what happens. Um, verse five, 
an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. So it ramps up quick. Paul and Barnabas are there preaching the word. People are upset. But then eventually they say, okay, we need to get these guys out of here. So basically they're threatening them with, uh, with stoning them, which you've probably heard about before. Fairly common punishment in the ancient Near East, but where people would surround somebody and would throw the biggest rocks they could get their hands on until that person was dead. It's pretty horrible. That's the thing that they are threatening Paul and Barnabas with here. That's what these guys are, are trying to do to them. So the, the preaching of the gospel, it's made these folks out of their minds with rage, where they're willing to do this to, to two other people. True gospel proclamation produces opposition. Now, praise God, you, you won't be in danger of being stoned by people this week. Praise the Lord for it, right? For sharing the gospel. But, but you're, you're definitely in danger of alienation. You know, we know that. There's certain costs here. There's opposition to the gospel. So if you're talking to your coworker about the gospel and they realize that you really think Jesus is the only way to get to God, a lot of people are going to be really, really displeased with that. A lot of people are, are going to let you feel kind of that alienation. They'll let you know how arrogant and backwards they, they think that is. And, and they might not even want to have any sort of casual friendship with you anymore. That's the kind of thing that happens when we talk about the gospel. If you're a student, there could be other students who don't want to hang out with you once they understand that you think the Bible really is God's word and everything in there is true. But, but here's the main point. Even if you're the sweetest person in the world, and there's a lot of sweet people here, even if you're the sweetest person in the world, and even if your sharing of the gospel is as winsome as it could possibly be, and you have the best motives, you still need to be ready for opposition, because that's simply what happens when you tell sinners that they're sinners in need of a savior. It's just the way it is, because we follow one who is sweeter than all of us and one who never had any mixed motives, and one who was more winsome than anybody who's ever lived, and they were still very displeased, the people were, with his proclamation of the gospel. He tells us why. This is John chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus says, The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So people only took Jesus' niceness into account until he told them they were sinners, and then they turned on him in the blink of an eye. And the same thing will happen to us. This is John chapter 15, verse 20. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will also persecute you. So this is a good question to ask yourself. Do I ever experience opposition because of the gospel? Because if that's a characteristic of true gospel proclamation, well, you can connect the dots. Okay, if I never experience opposition, am I truly proclaiming the gospel? Am I taking opportunities to do that? If that's you, then pray for opportunities to share about the good news of Christ. Paul and Barnabas have this experience of these people wanting to stone them because Paul and Barnabas are talking about Jesus Christ. The true gospel proclamation produces opposition. And this opposition makes, makes even less sense when we take verse 3 into account. So they remained for a long time, Paul and Barnabas, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So this is pretty incredible. The apostles aren't just speaking the gospel. God's also producing miracles through them. So supernatural things are happening. 
through the hands of the apostles here in Iconium. People are seeing these things. Again, this is a pattern we see in the book of Acts. God accompanies the preaching of his word with evidence, with signs and wonders, the way we're told here. So, so in the book of Acts, it, it was things like the apostles healing people. We see that back in Acts chapter 3. Or, or new Christians speaking a language they've never heard before. We saw that in Acts chapter 10. Our passage tells us why he has provided miracles like that. We're told in the middle of verse 3, the point of these signs and wonders is to bear witness to the word of his grace. Now, the word of grace, that's just a nickname for the gospel. So what he's saying is these miracles are there to bear witness to the gospel. These signs are like a witness that takes the stand in a courtroom and testifies about the truthfulness of the gospel, that it's real and it's true. God sends these miracles to act like witnesses for the truth about Christ. And this is our fourth point this morning. True gospel proclamation produces evidence. It produces evidence. Now, now Acts makes it pretty clear that the Lord uses this group of apostles in a pretty unique way to produce these miracles. So here's Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And that's what we see happening here, verse 3. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Okay, so, so does, does this mean we have no evidence that can witness to the truthfulness of the gospel? You know, simply because we don't have apostles here today that are healing blind people, giving them their sight, that are healing lame people where they can walk again? No, of course not. We, we do have evidence. But the main evidence that we have is the evidence of a changed life. So in the same way that Peter and John heal that lame man back in Acts chapter 3, where he's, he's getting up and he's walking, and, and the evidence of his healing is that he's running and jumping. You probably remember that story in Acts 3. It works the same way for us as believers. We're supposed to have that same kind of evidence, fruit of a changed life, because the gospel has changed us. And see, you, you can understand why this is so helpful, why the Lord does things this way. People, people might be able to call into question whether the gospel message is true, but it's much harder to call into question whether your marriage is radically better than it was five years ago as a result of that gospel. You know, it's, it's much harder to call into question the fact that before you were a Christian, you, you were undisciplined and, and you were lazy at school and lazy in your job. And then your coworkers have to come to terms with the fact that God has changed you. It's easier for somebody to pick on the resurrection than it is to pick on that because they've got this evidence in front of them that's verifiable. This coworker was completely different than he is now. This fellow student was completely different than she is now. They've been changed, and they've been changed by the gospel. So the, the non-Christians around you, they can tear down your doctrine, but what can they really say about your life when they see those changes that, that occur? Not much. And that's where you have the opportunity to put your life on the stand to testify about the truthfulness of the gospel which is what we're supposed to do as, as Christians, to tell people, you know, the reason I'm a different person than I used to be is because I'm connected to Christ now. He's paid for my sins, and he's given me a spirit that's changed me, that's transformed me. So are, are there parts of your life that could be put on the witness stand to testify to the truth of the gospel? So we can think about a couple of them, but you can fill in the blank. Could you put your attitude at work on the witness stand to testify to the truth of the gospel? Or... Would your attitude at work 
not be a very good witness that the defense probably wouldn't call. You know, what, what about uh, your work ethic at school if you're a student? Could you put that on the stand to show, to testify to the goodness of the gospel, the truth of the gospel? What, what about your parenting? Could you call it to the stand to testify to the truth of the gospel? The gospel produces evidence. It, it produces fruit. So, so pray for that. You might remember, but back in Acts 4, the religious leaders are trying to wreck the credibility of the apostles. But it's pretty hard to do when there's a guy standing in front of them who couldn't walk and now can walk. Acts chapter 4, verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Of course, that's what we're praying for. That's the idea. God provides fruit through the Christian life, through being connected to Christ, and that serves as evidence for the truthfulness of the gospel. True gospel proclamation produces evidence. We'll look at the final three verses of our passage. Verse 5, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So our passage ends with Paul and Barnabas leaving Iconium, heading out to these other cities. Now, now why, why did they leave? Well, the, the immediate reason is because they were about to get stoned by these people if they hung around. So they didn't stay. So they, they left. Now, part of that is, is because it would have been bad to have get stoned simply because it's bad for somebody to take innocent human life, right? So it's, it's right for people to try to avoid that. But more than that, the reason they left is because if they were dead, they wouldn't be able to do what they wanted to do in these other cities. So verse 7, and there in these other cities, they continued to preach the gospel. And this is our final point this morning. True gospel proclamation protects itself. True gospel proclamation protects itself. If Paul and Barnabas had allowed themselves to be killed in Iconium, they wouldn't be able to preach the gospel in these other cities. But see, gospel proclamation protects itself because that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's the main point. The mission they'd been given by Christ is to go out proclaiming the gospel. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Their role was to spread the good news of Christ, not only in Judea and Jerusalem, but to go past that, past Samaria, to the ends of the earth, out to the rest of the world. Well, that means they're going to do everything they can to keep proclaiming the gospel. Preaching was, was the most important thing to them. And you might remember it was the most important thing to Jesus in his earthly ministry. This is Mark chapter 1, verse 37. And Jesus said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. So when it comes to the mission of God, the proclamation of the gospel, it's of central importance. And so Paul and Barnabas, they protect that proclamation by leaving town but before they get stoned so they can go out and preach the gospel. Verse 6, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. <clears throat> and there they continued to preach the gospel. True gospel proclamation protects itself. So, so how about our church? Do we protect the preaching of the word? So if, if given the choice, would, would we trade the preaching ministry for something else? So if, if God said, hey, trade in the preaching ministry and I'll give you this really extensive youth ministry, right, with, with all of these different things. Or trade in the preaching ministry, and, and I'll give you the exact kind of music ministry that you would like. 
or trade in the preaching ministry and I'll, I'll give you a new nice building where there is not a decaying rat in the air. You know, as a church, would we make that trade? You know, in other words, are, are we as committed to preserving gospel proclamation as Paul and Barnabas are in our passage? Well, it makes sense for them. They, they realize, as Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. It's the, it's the proclamation of the gospel that's central to everything. And, and although that proclamation of the gospel, it, it will produce opposition, it also will produce fruit and evidence for its truthfulness. And, and that's why we should preach it boldly and protect it. So let's pray that this kind of gospel proclamation would always characterize us as Christians and would characterize our church. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel.